This is the Hiking Through Life podcast. We've all been gifted a journey called life. Let's see where the journey leads us today. Are you planning a through hike? Or are you just sick of sitting around your house and want to get out? Maybe you're looking at doing a backpacking trip this summer, whether it be just for a couple nights, or maybe you have bigger aspirations like the AT or the PCT. Either way, you're going to need some delicious food on your trip. Backcountry Foodie provides recipes and meal planning tools, everything that you need to make sure that you get the proper nutrition while you're out on the trail. Check out backcountryfoodie.com and you can use the code hiking through life to save 20% when you sign up at backcountryfoodie.com. We're excited to use Backcountry Foodie's meal planning kit to get away from some of our more regular meals and try something different. So again, if you use the code hiking through life, you can save 20% when you sign up at backcountryfoodie.com. Welcome to the Hiking Through Life podcast, where we talk with people who in some way, shape, or form have been influenced by the outdoors. I'm Andy, the producer of this podcast, and my lovely wife, Sarah, will be your host. Together, we make up Hiking Through Life. This podcast is all about bringing all kinds of people who are inspired by the outdoors and sharing their stories. We hope that by sharing people's stories, it inspires others to get out and live a more meaningful life. Tune in every week for new episodes, or better yet, subscribe to the Hiking Through Life podcast on your favorite podcast provider. If you enjoy this podcast, please share it with others. Also, if you have a story to share or know of anyone who might be interested in being a guest on this podcast, head on over to hikingthroughlife.net slash podcast and get in touch with us. Now sit back and enjoy this week's episode. Welcome to the Hiking Through Life podcast. Today on the podcast, we have Christy Teglo. Christy is a world traveler and adventure seeker. She has done all this as a solo female and shares the experience on her website, Teglo Goes. We are here today to hear about some of her adventures, challenges, and experiences, including a through hike of the John Muir Trail, writing her memoir, Weathered, and selling her home in LA to take an experiences over stuff. Welcome to the podcast, Christy. Hi, thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Yeah. So let's kind of back up to where this all started. You... You're originally from St. Louis, but you moved to LA. Let's kind of start there. Yeah, I grew up mostly in St. Louis. Uh, junior high years were in Colorado and graduated college in Missouri, then moved to Los Angeles at 23. Uh, lived there for 15 years. I had gotten married, um, worked in retail management, then corporate management and recruiting uh, for a company. And um, yeah, I was kind of just plugging along and uh Long Beach. And uh, in two, the beginning of 2016, a friend of mine had uh, mentioned the John Muir Trail, which um, I had never heard of before. I had watched uh, the movie Wild the fall of 2015. And that was honestly my first time ever hearing about like long distance through hiking. And so when he told me about the JMT, I thought, oh, well, this I can hike in three weeks. I can get the vacation time. Um, seems like the most beautiful part of the trail and was really just kind of going through a like, hmm, corporate America and, you know, working for money and things in a house, um, was also then separated, um, with my husband. We'd been married about nine years at that time. 
and really just kind of a pivotal point in my life where, you know, I was trying to figure out what to do. So I was 36 and um, I got the permit for the JMT and had six months to plan, prepare, <laughs> hike uh, every, you know, do day hikes every weekend in Southern California and uh, really just get prepared. And the JMT was my actual <laughs> very first backpacking experience. So. <laughs> Which is like, it's a really hard trail. Like it sounded like you're like constantly going up or down like there's constant inclines and I mean it's a shorter long distance trail but that doesn't make it any easier yeah that's just it is there's you know it's a very different hiking let's say even like um you know you can hike uh 10 miles of a trail that's flat versus hiking um 10 miles where you're climbing up or down makes a dramatic difference and the JMT is virtually never flat. Um, you know, even if it looks flat at times, you're still in an incline. I think the total elevation gain is about 47,000 feet and the descent is a little over 50,000. And it's basically like climbing Everest twice. Um, so it's a lot, a lot of climbing. So it actually living in Southern California, the mountains um, at the base there, they have some really good trails that are really similar to the JMT. So I was able to get in a lot of um, hiking and elevation gain um, for the six months while I was training. But then my my start date was August 31st, 2016. And I'd planned on taking about three weeks. And so mo pretty much the hike was all September other than that first day. So yeah, the temperatures were, were pretty wild. And yeah, but that, that, was, uh, that was kind of my start of really starting to say, I want something different. I'm not really sure what it is. Um, but being out there for three weeks, you know, gives you a lot of time to reevaluate, you know, what do I want to do with my life? Right. For sure. I mean, three weeks and you did this solo. So like, that's just a lot of like time to think. But when I was reading your memoir, it did sound like you came across a lot of people and were hiking with people for good portions of your time. Yeah. That's, you know, one thing that was a pleasant surprise was, um, getting to meet fellow hikers. Some people were couples, some were solo as well, or some people were solo, but they met up with three other people. So now, you know, they were a group of four and um, it, they were all like, just really pleasant to be around, really helpful. Um, it gave me, you know, sometimes that comfort level of somebody was camping near me or I could see them um, just knowing that I wasn't totally out, you know, because the John Muir trail is extremely remote. So when the first 30 miles or so you're in Yosemite Valley. So there's people who could do day hikes to portions of it, um, that you'll pass like near Tuolumne Meadows. Same thing as you get close to Red's Meadow. Um, there, there are portions where people can hike in, but the vast majority of the trail is so remote that, you know, there's very few trails, especially on the second, the second half going southbound. Um, you have to hike in, you know, at least 10 miles and up several thousand feet just to get to the trail. Um, you know, there's no roads that are, close to it once you get out of Yosemite. So sometimes, you know, it was a little uh, <laughs> scary thinking, you know, you're so remote. Um, so sometimes it was really nice having um, some people that were nearby and, you know, yeah, we would kind of leapfrog each other, um, see each other on the trail. Then I'd have some alone time hiking and, you know, I'd see them later at camp or pass them at lunch. So yeah, I, I ended up meeting uh, quite a few people. Yeah, that is really nice when you're out there alone and like so remote. Were there ever nights where you were totally camping by yourself? I don't recall from your memoir if you mentioned that or not. 
Yeah. So like the first night I actually, I only hiked like five miles. Um, I was still in Yosemite in the backpacker campground. So there were a few people like strangers nearby. Um, I didn't really talk to anybody, but it, it, you know, felt relatively safe. And then most of the trail, I would say, even when I was remote, just because you usually have to camp, you know, at a a campsite per se, which is really just, you know, a flat spot that's near water. Um, so because you're camping near usually a lake, um, to have that water supply for dinner and breakfast, there would usually be at least a couple of people. Sometimes I could hear people, but I couldn't see them or, you know, I could just see a tiny dot across the lake. But once the last uh, few days of the trail, because it was now September going on the third week of September, and I was going southbound towards Mount Whitney, there weren't many people starting to hike the trail going northbound. <laughs> so I didn't run into many people going the opposite way. And then it was just fewer and fewer people even going southbound. So there was a couple of nights where it was just me. I remember one night, um, it was probably one or two days before I got to Mount Whitney. Um, it was just rocky. I had just gone over a pass and found a lake and nobody in sight, you know, and it was, I had pretty clear views because it was just, you know, rocks that, you know, were the size of basketballs or so. So I could see pretty far distance that it was <laughs> dusk when I'm setting up my tent, dark when I was eating dinner. And yeah, there was a couple of those, like, don't think about this. If I let myself think about you are totally alone, remote, you haven't seen anybody for most of the day. <laughs> it's going to mentally get to you. So I would literally try not to think about it and then just, let me just go to sleep because there was a comfort level and sometimes just knowing, okay, even if I don't know that person, even if they're far away, I can see that there is another human being somewhere in existence. But um, I remember that night because it, I hadn't seen anybody most of the day. I think I'd seen like two people um, and just kind of had my thoughts and thought, okay, you know, I can do this. I've, I've been doing this for over two weeks now. I, I got this, but yeah, you, you do meet people and it depends on what time of year you go. People who hike it in July that feel like they see a lot of people. Um, but I think because I hiked in September, um, I saw a lot fewer people, um, especially towards the end of the trail. Okay. Because like the busy season, like when's like the big, like busy season for the JMT? Like, does it start in May or what's that look like? So I think there's some people who will try to hike at the end of May, but even the people who hike it in June, it's really hit hit or miss depending on the snow season. Um, you know, if it were a year where there wasn't a ton of snow, um, people can start hiking it in June, but some of the taller passes you will come across that snow is still going to be packed on the mountain. So you have to have crampons with you. Um, July and August are probably the most popular because the snow should be melted. Um, you have plenty of water. I will say because I hiked in September, like in Yosemite, um, one of the lakes ran out uh, of water. So there you you kind of you can run into issues of drought now being because it's so late in the season and then you run into different weather issues. But when I was reading some books and and blogs um, preparing, I know that there were some people who hiked in July, but there were so many mosquitoes that they had to set up their tent just to eat lunch because they were being attacked so bad. And some people just gave up and, and quit the trail because mosquitoes are so bad when, you know, the snow had just melted. So the other issue for me, like, I mean, people do try to hike it in June, some years on a big snow year, you just almost can't hike it um, until end of June or so. But the other issue is that the rivers are really high. So you end up crossing hundreds of rivers and streams 
And for me, I only had to take off my shoes once because there's usually a log or rocks that I could balance on to cross the water. And if you're going in July or August, the, you know, it could be waist high, uh, knee high. And so you're having to cross those powerful rivers, which can be really dangerous. So I actually felt like September was a pretty sweet, sweet time to go. <laughs> right. Like sometimes like the, the rivers like are one of the scariest things when you're like out on those trails, especially alone. But I remember you mentioned in your book that luckily there was someone to like cross that like rushing river with you. Right. Yeah, we had um, there's one that um, I had to do kind of early on. I mean, this other guy we were hiking, we kind of made a wrong turn and had to go off trail to get back. And uh, yeah, it was, it was a little dicey because the, the rocks were not designed to where most of the crossings, because it's following the trail, uh, the rocks are really nicely, you know, I don't know who did this, but you know, these trail angels, you know, have set up all these rocks and logs so that you can, you know, hop pretty nicely across the, the water and trekking poles help tremendously with that. But there was one that the rocks were really spread apart and it was like, uh, this isn't a designated crossing. So we're kind of having to make our way zigzagging down it. Um, but yeah, I, I've definitely heard about and read that some people, you know, really encounter just raging <laughs> waters from all the snow melt. So it, it really depends on what kind of snow they got the season before. Um, but you really, June-ish, July, August, and September are really the only times you can hike the trail because otherwise it's just covered in snow. Right. So that's like a pretty short period of time, but it's a short trail to do. And like, so I'm assuming you chose this trail just because it was like the amount of time you had to take off work. Yeah. When I, so when I saw wild and I thought, wow, that's really cool. You know, I didn't know about through hiking. I had done camping as a kid, but it was car camping and hadn't camped probably in, you know, 10 to 12 years. My ex-husband wasn't really a camper and um, I'd wanted to get into it, but I knew nothing about it. So when I saw the movie, I know it's super cliche. <laughs> I see the movie, and, but at the time, I, I really just thought, you know, I don't have six months to hike the PCT, and the desert didn't really appeal to me because I drink a ton of water, and I just thought I'm just going to run out of water. And up north didn't appeal to me because it, you know, like in the movie, you see all the rain, and I thought, oh, hiking and camping in the rain doesn't seem very fun. But mostly it was there was no way I could have gotten six months off work. So when my friend told me about the JMT, and I looked at, I googled pictures. And I, it was just beautiful. I mean, mountains the whole way. I thought, wow, that is, you know, arguably the most beautiful section because 150 miles of the JMT is the same as the PCT. Uh, the PCT doesn't include Mount Whitney. Um, and so it felt like, well, this is such an incredibly beautiful trail and I can hike in three weeks. Most people do it between two to four, uh, somewhere in there, three weeks is pretty common. And uh, I just thought, well, you see if I can get a permit and it took 10 days of rejections. <laughs> it's hard to get a permit. And once I got the permit, um, it was just kind of set in stone for me. Like, yep, I'm, I'm going to do this trail. And it still, you know, I've hiked since then at different places. And I still say it's one of the most beautiful trails, one of the most beautiful places on earth. I mean, everywhere you look, it's just constant views and you're on a vista and a mountaintop. And um, it just, it makes all the climbing <laughs> up and down worth it. Yeah, well, and to say that it's one of the most beautiful places you've been says a lot because you've like seen a lot of places in, in your world travels and hiked a lot of places. So that says a lot about the trail and the challenges that it brings. Would you say like this is by far the most challenging hike you've ever done based on all the hikes you've ever done? Yeah, and this one, you know, because of the length and the elevation and really just 
you know, the, the other part that makes through hiking so difficult is the, um, having to survive <laughs> on your own, um, for three weeks in the wilderness. And so I think the combination of surviving the weather, I mean, I, I got ran into a hail thunder lightning storm halfway through. Um, and then it snowed when I was climbing Mount Whitney. Um, so, and then at night, even if it didn't, you know, snow, it was freezing temps often. So during the day, it might be seventies, eighties. And as soon as that sun set below the mountain at seven o'clock, it just got colder and colder. And, um, several nights there was frost on my tent and it was below freezing. And so going back and forth between warm, cold, freezing, warm, freezing, that made it really challenging the elevation. And, um, you're also most of the trails over 10,000 feet. So, you know, some people get altitude sickness. Um, thankfully I never did. I, I had altitude sickness medicine just in case, but thankfully I, I didn't really have any of those issues. Um, but I, I intentionally stayed the night before in mammoth, which is, I think about 4,000 feet or so, or at least a couple thousand feet. And then when I, my first night I stayed at, you know, the trail starts at 4,000 feet. My first night I was at Yosemite backpacker campground at about 6,000 feet. So I kind of slowly worked my way up. And I think by night two, I was at 9,000 feet. And if you go the reverse, if you go northbound, you're going to start on Whitney portal and, you know, you'll start at 7,000 feet and then head all the way up to 14,500 feet. Um, and then you'll kind of go down. So going southbound, which is more common, you get to, you know, your first major pass is Donahue Pass. So it takes a few days to get there. It's 11,000 feet. But as you progress southbound, the pass, the mountain passes are 11,000, 12,000, 13,000 feet. So um, that's also part of the issue is, you know, you're just above tree line. You're, <laughs> you're kind of in this whole other world. You know, some of the mountains looked like Mars, you know, it was just barren and rock. So I, I would definitely say it's, it's the hardest and, in all of those regards, um, but also partly because I haven't done a trail that long anywhere else or that season. But I mean, I've definitely been on trails where it's a day hike and where it's, in, you know, it's in another country where it's still really steep or it has other challenges. But um, yeah, the, the John Muir Trail is definitely a, a beast of a trail. <laughs> Right. Well, yeah. And it's different when like you've done like day hikes, but like, you know, you're going back to comforts at night. <laughs> yeah, exactly. When you're out on a through hike, it's like, oh yeah, I'm out here above the tree lines and maybe it's going to storm tonight. Maybe it's going to hail. I just have to deal with the weather conditions, whatever comes. Yeah. And then, you know, you go to bed and you're exhausted and your body hurts so bad. And I would take ibuprofen and you know, tomorrow you have a whole nother day of <laughs> another 12 miles or 15 miles and climbing. And it's, it's that mentally knowing and preparing, like there's no rest, there's no break. Uh, whereas, yeah, if you're on a day hike, you know, like, okay, I can go home and rest and I don't have to wake up in the morning and go do this all over again. <laughs> right. Right. But like, like you said, like some of the people, like you met people along the way that kind of like kept you inspired. And another thing that I thought was really cool was like the letters that people from home wrote to you like halfway through your hike, like those really like re-energized you and kept you going too. Yeah, they really did. I, you know, it was kind of a shot in the dark. I had, you know, posted on social media before my trip and said, Hey, if you want to send me a letter, here's the address at Muir Trail Ranch. I was about the halfway point and I booked a pretty rustic cabin there for two nights to have a zero day. And I was just so thrilled. I mean, they just made me cry. It was, and they made me laugh. Um, you know, friends who, 
were just so supportive and, you know, saying things like you've got this. And they knew that I was separated from my husband at the time. So they knew that it was a time of, you know, reflection and hopefully getting some answers and um, having just time with nature. And yeah, it just made me feel so loved and so cared for and and inspired to say like, well, they all believe in me. I got to believe in me, you know, I'm halfway there and (laughs) I can do this. So yeah, those, those letters were, were really big comfort to me at that time. Right, right. Well, yeah. And let's talk about some of like the planning that you did for this trip. Like you said, like your book kind of started out with how you were like shopping at REI and you felt like a little just like out of place there because you hadn't done any of this before. You just felt like such a newbie. Like talk us through some of those like feelings and experiences of just like doing this and never having been in an REI before basically. Yeah. yeah, it was it was quite an experience. I was so shy and so afraid to ask anybody for any help. Um I just felt like, oh my gosh, look at all this gear and um I just felt like I didn't look the part. I was a little overweight, so I was um trying to lose weight and um rejoined weight watchers and stuff and I just I had never backpacked before. So my biggest fear was if I asked somebody oh, can you help me find gear? Cause I'm going to hike the JMT that they would have been like, well, you don't have any gear. You've never done this. Like maybe you, and I had friends ask me that, don't you want to start your backpacking experience with maybe a weekend trip or, you know, something smaller. And, um, I just felt like, oh, they're just going to think I'm ridiculous. And I only left that first time I went into REI with a John Muir trail pocket guide map and and membership for REI. And it was a week or two later, I realized, well, I'm doing this hike. I'm determined to do this hike. I have a permit and I need to suck up my pride and just ask for help because I I need help. Um, I don't, you know, know what is the best gear. And I'd been looking at stuff online. So when I went in, went back in and I said, oh, I'm hiking the John Muir Trail. And, um, you know, can you help me with the backpack? You know, some of these gear. And I was just so pleasantly surprised at how supportive people were. And it just really dawned on me that these were my insecurities. This wasn't a reflection of how people were actually going to respond to me. It was me kind of making up in my head, oh, people are going to judge me. And um, they were super nice. Nobody even looked at me like, you're ridiculous. They were so excited to help. And they said, you know, let's find the right backpack. Um, let's help you with shoes. Let's help you with all your different gear and asking me what I had. And I ended up taking a like six hour class through REI with like backpacking basics. And um, that really helped because I actually did end up changing my stove <laughs> through that class. And yeah, it just, it was, you know, really intimidating when you're not part of that world, just because I think there's people who've been backpacking and hiking and you know, for decades. And so it can be really intimidated if it's a new thing for you. <laughs> it, it makes you feel like you're, you're really out of your element. But honestly, once I, you know, kind of face those fears and just start asking for help, it, it just, it went so much better than I would have thought or imagined. Right. Well, it's just like, kind of like anything when you've never done anything, like stepping into a world that you've never been in is, yeah, it's super intimidating. Like you said, for sure. Um, and then didn't you also go on, like you went on like a trial camping trip with all of your stuff? Yeah. So it was, a, I think a couple of week, a week or two before um, starting the John Muir Trail, there was this group camping trip um, through my church that people had gone to. So it was all car camping. And I said, well, this will be a good time to try my tent, my backpack, 
my stove, eat my food. Um, part of the, the class I took at REI, I remember the guy said, okay, if you're new to backpacking, make sure that you cut off all of your tags off your product, because if you show up to camp with tags on your stuff, you're going to look really ridiculous. And I thought, oh my gosh, he's right. And I should really try my gear, like, <laughs> and make sure it all works. So I had already been using the shoes for a while to break them in and on my day hikes, but um, it worked out really well because I, I realized a couple things during that kind of trial was I was sliding all over my tent and I realized that I didn't put, they recommend like a, the, put the sealant kind of stripes on the floor that help um, hold your pad and stuff. So you're not sliding. I also realized the ultralight backpack that I got was way too flimsy and wasn't big enough. And I hated that it didn't stand up and it just kept falling um, because it was so flimsy. So I ended up returning that and I got a little bit heavier Osprey one, which I really loved that backpack. So it really helped. And I, I ate the risotto, <laughs> one of my meals and I couldn't stand it. I think I still brought one um, on the trail, which I had a hard time getting down, but it, it was at least that, okay, my coffee's going to work. How are the eggs going to work? I might, you know, try some of my foods. Um, it was, you had pretty much like the same foods. Yes. Day, right. Like you didn't have a lot of options. No, I was gluten-free. Um, I have a lot of gluten intolerance, but I, I love gluten. So, um, it's difficult for me to avoid gluten, but I had been gluten-free for most of that year. And so I was pretty determined to, to kind of keep it that way. But the problem is so many backpacker foods are <laughs> full of gluten tortillas and, um, just lots of carbs. So, um, it was a challenge and I ended up saying, well, okay, I can eat rice. Um, you know, if I can't do tortilla, I brought like, um, the rice crackers, but they were so thin and frail. They mostly broke <laughs> by the time I tried to eat them. And, um, yeah, it ended up eating, you know, beef jerky and peanut butter. And my meals were mostly beef and rice or chicken and rice. And, um, I definitely, I never got sick of my oatmeal probably cause I had brown sugar and raisins that I put in it, but I, definitely got sick of eating meats and cheeses. I definitely got sick of eating <laughs> rice and some sort of meat, you know, chicken or, or beef. I had a hard time eating a lot of my food. And plus you, you know, I'd heard that you can lose your appetite um, on the trail, especially at high elevation. And you're just climbing for so many hours a day. And I didn't really think that would be true, but I really did struggle some days to eat some of the food. I'm, I'm just somebody who needs variety in my food. So, um, yeah, if I were to do it again, I would definitely spend more time and resources. I know you you had somebody on, I think recently, I'm um, talking about food. And um, I think that's really helpful when people who know <laughs> a lot better than I do about the food, they can help with those resources of, you know, here's how to still get quality food on a through hike without, you know, just sacrificing what you need to sustain, but also taste. <laughs> Right, right. Well, and like you said, it's like when you're doing this for the first time, you don't know any better. You just go and buy like the dehydrated things that are a little bit overpriced and you're just like, all right, this is going to be it. And I can't even imagine like hiking for like that many hours a day and then just like not even having an appetite because like, you know, your body needs that fuel, but like, yeah, physically you just can't. It is. It's, it's a bizarre feeling because I'm not somebody who's normally struggled with having an app, not having an appetite. So it was, yeah, it was just bizarre. I would, you know, I had some protein shakes and um, electrolyte sticks and some things to kind of help me throughout the day, but there weren't many, I don't think really any times where I felt just like, oh, I'm so hungry or I actually felt the opposite. It was just like, oh, 
I got to eat this food. I don't want to eat this food, but I got to eat it. And yeah, I, I don't really know if it was the elevation or just the strenuousness. I'm not sure, but I had definitely read that people said you could end up losing your appetite. Um, I think it had to do with the elevation, but um, yeah, it was kind of bizarre to think, well, I need, I need these calories. I'm, <laughs> I'm climbing so much, but yeah, it was really hard to stomach uh, some of those foods. Right. Did you ever feel like you were dehydrated? Um, you know, I, so it was probably, um, I think on day three, uh, night two, the lake that I stayed at at Sunrise High Sierra Camp, the lake had run out of water and had, I carried a lot of extra water up to camp and I used the water for my dinner and to clean my dishes and breakfast. Then I gave some water to another uh, backpacker. And within, I think, one to two miles, I was out and it was a really hot, sunny day and I'm sweating and just knowing I have no water and that there wasn't a lake until mile four, I felt extremely parched. And, you know, when you know, you don't have water and you can't get water, all you want is water. Um, that was definitely when I finally got to that lake at mile four. I mean, I just drank so much water. Um, same thing on night, um, I think it was 17 when I went over Glen Pass and I was trying to meet my friend who said she'd hike in to see me and I didn't want to stop for water because I knew I already had an 18 mile day ahead of me and had to do Glen Pass and which ended up to be the hardest pass and I ran out of water and now I'm up the mountain there's nowhere to get water even if I wanted to now it's getting dark oh it was a horrible feeling of just thinking I'm so thirsty I ended up, you know, getting to see her and I, I, you know, down the water, but the next, I wasn't able to really get water until the next morning. And I just remember I probably drank 40 ounces as soon as I filtered it and kept loading up. So I did feel like just because I do sweat a decent amount, <laughs> um, especially because it was warm during the day that I still went through a lot of water. I mean, in my regular life, I do tend to drink a lot of water, but water was, you know, I had no problem <laughs> um, going through and still feeling thirsty and drinking water. It was just something about the food that um, I didn't mind a lot of my snacks, probably just because they were more variety and they tasted better. Um, it was just a lot of those meals were not so good, dehydrated uh, <laughs> rice and meat. Right, right. And they're always so like sodium filled, yes. which you need if you're sweating so much. <laughs> yeah, true. <laughs> yeah, like you definitely do need those. But yeah, I mean, that's yeah that's crazy so did you ever have like a night where you because you don't really pass towns necessarily do you no you only um so you on mile 30 you go through Tuolumne Meadows which is in Yosemite so it's not a town but they have a backpacker campground some car camping and then they do have like a little cafe there and I think a small hotel so I had gone to the cafe for breakfast and stayed at the backpacker campground. And then at mile 60, you go through Red's Meadow and where the trail takes you, you go through Devil's Post Pile. And then at Red's, they have a little um, convenience store. And that's where you can send yourself a resupply, which is what I did. And then they do have like a really small motel that has a handful of rooms and then a couple kind of old A-frame cabins. And um that was great because that was where I sent my first resupply. So um, it was, I think about mile 60 and I was able to do laundry. They had washer and dryers that you could use for, you know, coin laundry. And I would have been so cold two nights before that I said, you know, I didn't plan on it. And I, I 
begged them. I said, do you have a room, anything available? Because I just need warmth tonight because I was just cold. I think somebody told me that night, it was two nights before a thousand Island. It was 26 degrees. And with the wind, it had to be in the teens. And there's just a cold front came through and they ended up having just a cabin, an A-frame cabin. So I booked that and I was able to do the laundry at the coin laundry and then eat at the cafe. And it was, it was what I needed because I, I really felt like two nights before, I don't know if I can do this. If this is this cold every night, I mean, I was shivering, teeth chattering for 30 minutes straight. I had to put on top of my thermals, my pants, my coat, my gloves, my hat, like everything. And I definitely needed some sort of warmth <laughs> um, that night. But when, once you pass Red's Meadow, um, you don't come to anything on the trail until, until Mirror Trail Ranch, which is at mile 105, I believe. So, and then even that, you can't drive to Mirror Trail Ranch. There's no roads. Um, they just have some cabins. Um, they have laundry, which is like old school laundry where you got to like crank it <laughs> in this wheel and then line dry it. And because they're so remote, like you have to have a reservation in advance if you want to stay there. And even if no matter what, you have to hike in there because they're the only people allowed to drive on the fire road to bring in supplies like once a week. And um, they have like their showers, outdoor shower. Um, and you can send yourself a resupply and they do have some stuff there. But if you're not a paying guest, you can really only get the resupply. So definitely not a town, but at least there's some resources and um but even their, their little shop to buy stuff you can't buy unless you're a paid overnight guest because all their supplies and food are really limited because they have to bring it in. But if you go off the trail, um, you can go to Vermilion, which I went to because I was a little ahead of schedule, um, which is, I don't know, it was I think in two days after I stayed at Red's, you have to go about five miles off the trail. And I took a boat to get there. And that was also a campground that was for car camping. So again, not a town, but it was a big enough campground that they also had a little cafe and a little shop with some basic necessities. And then once you pass Mirror Trail Ranch at the halfway point, um, 105, 110 mile in, there is nothing. Um, so that's like your last resupply option. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the biggest challenge from that point to the end of the trail to Mount Whitney is you have to go 110 miles, but because you have to carry a bear canister for any of your food or anything with the scent you have to be able to fit all your food in that canister. So for me, the most food that I could fit in that canister was nine days of food. So I knew I had to finish that last 110 miles within nine days. Um, the only options that you can do for resupply is you can hike to independence. I think it's about 11 miles one way, um, send something to the post office, but you have to time it so you can pick it up when they're open. And you gotta, I was like, oh, I don't wanna do an extra 20 miles. Um, and then I'd have to stay in independence and some people will stay at a hotel there or something and come back on the trail. And alternatively, you can have somebody hike you in some supplies, you know, family or friend, but again, they have to hike at least 10 miles one way. Um, and they have to go over the mountain <laughs> and you can also do a meal, meal run <laughs> supply. So there's companies that will bring in supplies on mules. Um, it's difficult to arrange. It's pretty expensive. I think it was like 250 or 500 dollars like per person um you didn't do that did you no i knew people who did those like the group of um tom thomas jerry oh Creston. those four guys yeah and from kind of the lake tahoe area they um two people had wanted to kind of quit hiking because it went they were supposed to meet their meal drop and the meal drop did not show the lake 
on their designated day. Well, there's no cell service pretty much on the entire JMT. So you have no way to communicate and they weren't there. So they had to hike two in their group hike to I think it was independence um, somewhere to, to be able to call the company and say, where's our resupply. And they said, Oh, we took it. They took it to the a wrong Lake. And so I think they had come back with their supply and they said, well, you're going to have to meet us halfway. So the two who went to independence decided, oh, I'm going to take this opportunity to just stop. Um, I'm not going to keep hiking. And I think they were at like mile 175 and they were also just one, her knees were really hurting pretty bad. And um, Creston and then Tom, he also was just kind of over the trail. So they at least arranged and were able to communicate. Um, I don't even know how, I think Tom and uh, Thomas and Jerry, I think went to like a ranger station that they saw to try to communicate. And they still had to hike, I think seven miles and go off the trail in a different direction, up and down a steep mountain to go pick up the resupplies. And he's like, and we'd paid for this, you know, for them to meet us at the lake. And then they like double charged him and he had to get the money back. And so I remember him saying, I think it was $500. And I don't know if it's because it was four of them. Um, so I don't remember the, the total pricing, but so the two of them continued, but they were really angry <laughs> about, and I said, yeah, that's, it's pretty hard to coordinate um, to know exactly what day and time you need somebody to be there. Um, you know, there's satellite phones that you can send basic messages to if you have that. I had an in-reach um, spot device, but I could only send pre-sent messages. So if I hit one button, it would just say, I'm okay, I'm having fun, um, which was something I'd programmed like online before. Right. And then another one would just send my location. And if I were in trouble, there were two buttons, one that would say, like, send help, which somebody would come on foot, or there's SOS, like send a helicopter. Um, and so I was just hitting the okay button or my location. So my family at least occasionally would know like my whereabouts or that I was okay. But if I if you're in a situation like that with a meal drop, you you know, you don't have a way of <laughs> communicating other than I'm okay or come help me. Um, so that's why I think they ended up having to go to a ranger station um, and had to go off trail um, to get that. And so your your best bet, honestly, is to just try to go for Mere Trail Ranch, send yourself a resupply and be able to finish the trail. But it's, you know, the John Muir Trail is 100 or 211 miles from the top of Mount Whitney to Yosemite Valley. But unless you're getting helicoptered off of Mount Whitney, um, you have to go another 11 miles down. So it's pretty silly that they say 211. So like, well, it's impossible to do 211 because you have to climb back down the mountain, <laughs> Whitney, right. um, which is at least 11 miles um, down and 7,000 feet down. So it's a pretty significant 11 miles. So it is challenging though, because you're remote, you are going over higher and higher passes and it's over hundred miles that now you're going to have to hike probably 115 miles without getting any sort of resupply. <laughs> so yeah. that's why my, my first half I did like four, eight to eight to 14 miles a day on average. And then the second half I was hiking about 15 to 18 miles a day, just because I knew I would need, but I, I intentionally planned it that way as well. I thought, well, this will get me used to backpacking, especially with, you know, the hiking my backpack was so heavy. Uh, it was about 50 pounds with my full food and water because I carried a lot of water. That's wild. 50 pounds. Yes. And I, that was when I waited, I think when I first left and I never waited again. Um, I just didn't want to know. And I thought, well, I'm drinking water. And, you know, I, I carried, I think I carried four liters um, just because I hated stopping during the day to filter water. It was, it was so hard to get my pack off. And then I had a gravity filter and I didn't like waiting. 
Um, so I prefer to just carry it from the get-go. And then I, I just kind of rationalized it in my head that, well, as I eat food, as I drink water, it's going to get lighter and lighter. And when I picked up my last resupply at Mirror Trail Ranch, they have a scale there. You can weigh your backpack. And this one guy weighed it, and I think his was 63 pounds. And I met uh, lots of people Whoa. who their, their backpack was 60 pounds, 55 pounds. And one really experienced backpacker, he said that's what made this trail so difficult for him, that he'd hiked a lot in the Appalachian Trail. And he said, this is really difficult because I'm not used to carrying such a heavy backpack. And it ends up being heavy because you have so few places that you can resupply. So you just yeah. have to carry a lot with you. But yeah, I, I, 50 pounds, I was not so happy with, but then when I heard other people had 60 and 63 pounds, I said, okay, at least I'm not that heavy. Yeah. That's crazy. I guess you can't like go ultra light on this trail. Like that just can't really be a concept. Yeah. The only, my friend, Dave, who took my other, cause I had gotten two permits. So he took my second permit. He, in a few years before this, he had hiked it in seven days but he was hiking 30 miles a day and it was only cause he couldn't get the time off work. He owned a mountain bike shop in Malibu. And, um, he actually said he regretted that because he didn't get to see and enjoy much of the trail because he was going so fast. So when he took my other permit and he said, I'm not going to take seven days, I'll do it in 10 days. <laughs> so 10 days was more reasonable to him doing less than 30 miles a day. Um, you're probably doing 25 a day. But he had a good point because we rode up together and, you know, I was a little embarrassed because his pack was smaller than mine. And I thought, oh no, am I just such a newbie that <laughs> my pack is like overweight and too big. And he actually brought up, probably trying to make me feel better, but I actually think it's true that he actually didn't sleep in a tent. He just put his sleeping bag on the ground. He didn't bring any cookware because he didn't cook at all. He only ate bars and Snickers. Um, and because he was going so fast, he only had to survive for 10 days where I had to have more supplies because I had to survive for 21 days. And he also didn't have to carry as much at a time because for, he mailed himself also a resupply at Red's Meadow and then Mirror Trail Ranch. So it took me probably six days or so to get to Red's Meadow, but you know, it took him like three days. So he only had to carry three days worth of food plus no cooking equipment. Then his next, you know, um, resupply he probably after picking up from reds was just a couple of days you know again maybe it's three four days and then even after leaving mirror trail ranch you know he probably did that in five days or something so he never had to carry more than a handful of days worth of food at a time because he was doing it so much quicker now granted he still has to carry a lot of food because he's hiking <laughs> crazy amounts of miles each, each day right. well and the food's like i mean it's it's all how you want to hike when you're doing those through hikes i guess it's it's like he he wasn't cooking any food i mean that's like part of the experience for some through hikers but obviously for him he's just like i have a mission i'm yep. gonna accomplish this yeah he's definitely one of those like he does iron mans it's it's yeah. he likes the challenge where you know, I met other people who they chose to, you know, they, they were fully physically capable of doing it in three weeks, even two weeks, but they chose to do it in four weeks because they wanted to have the experience. They wanted to be able to have time at camp to cook and, you know, write in their journal or read a book and enjoy the sunset. And, um, they didn't want to feel rushed. And I'll say even at three weeks, I had a hard time when I was often getting to camp because the sun would start to set at seven. And once it was behind the mountain at about seven 30, it was dark. And so your days were pretty short. And then in the morning, I'm not a morning person. And because I would tend to go to bed later, um, it just always took me two to three hours 
to get everything going in the morning because I had to go to the bathroom, which is work. (laughs) I had to cook my breakfast, then wash my dishes, then filter all my water for the day, change my clothes, put on my sunblock, pack up my tent, pack up my sleeping pad, my bed, you know, no matter how hard I tried, it was two and a half to three hours um, to get going. But then I tended to not stop much during the day. So even at lunch, I might stop for 20 minutes. I'd take small breather breaks to just catch my breath. But it was so much work for me to um, take off my backpack and get it back on and to get those things going. That's just how I preferred. But there were some nights where I got to camp, you know, at five o'clock. So I had a little bit more time or if I was camping near people, they had a fire going. So I was able to have you know, fireside chats. Um, but, you know, I met other people who, you know, they wanted to have more of that time. So that's why they chose four weeks and other people do two weeks just because they don't have the time off, but then you really got to pick up the pace and get a move on. So it's like you said, it really depends on your preference because it can be a, I'm just on a mission or it can be, I'm just out here to enjoy nature and the sunsets and I want to take my time. You know, everybody has a different style. Right, right. So yeah, and speaking of like journaling everything. So I'm curious, was writing the memoir, like a plan for you along the way? Or did that idea come after your hike? Um, I wanted to write about it. Um, I was a little unsure of kind of how it would look. But yeah, I think there's, you know, throughout my life, I've journaled a lot um, on and off just about things. And in 2014, me and my ex-husband were able to get a month off of work and we went to Europe. And my goal at the time then, as I said, oh, I'd really like to meet one person a day at least and kind of hear their story and write about them in journal and kind of write a book about, you know, the people we met in 28 days. And I, I started to do that. I did that most of our trip and I, I journal and you know, it gets harder and harder as you're adventuring to find time to journal. That never amounted to anything. I think when we got back from our trip, I spent, um, you know, I wrote like a handful of pages to kind of draft it and and it just never went anywhere. So when I was doing the John Muir Trail, I kind of had that same concept in mind of like, you know, I'd really like to share this adventure with other people, um, especially because it was so new to me. So, you know, I really enjoyed being able to also just remember it and what it was like and who I met and really to just encourage and inspire people that, um, you know, it's never too late to pick up a new hobby. It's never too late to learn something new. And, um, you know, I was 36 when I hiked it and it was my first backpacking trip. And when I got back to work, um, in corporate America, so many people were just so surprised and wanted to hear all about it. And I put together a a slideshow video and it was just really encouraging for me to see other people be encouraged because they thought, well, you know, if Christy can do it, so can I, because um, I wasn't a super experienced backpacker, but I'm also, you know, somebody who takes risks, but takes calculated risks. So I did spend six months reading books, watching documentaries, you know, going to REI with that class, um, doing day hikes. And um, so I, I like to prepare and I like to learn, but I think sometimes we convince ourselves, especially as we get older, that, oh, I'm, I'm too old to pos- you know start a new hobby, especially if it's something physical like backpacking or hiking and, oh, it would be too complicated. And it's really not, you know, you just, it takes planning, it takes preparation. Um, there's lots of resources out there though to help you. And so part of it was, I just wanted to be able to inspire people and say like, hey, you can do this too. And part of it was just wanting to bring people along the journey and kind of let people experience what I experienced and the people that I met. Right. Well, and you know, it's like so many people like 
so many people can say like, oh, it's just like another person through hiking a trail who wrote another book. But I think the more people that write about it, their own personal experience, because everyone's experience is so different and so unique. And like, I think yours is so unique in the way, like, like you said, like you started it later in life. And like, you were just like, so intimidated when you first started all this stuff, and you really didn't know anything about it. So that's going to connect to like, like so many more people, like you said at work, like all these people came to your presentation that you did. And were so like, in awe of what you had done. So just realizing that like, this can be for any an everyday person you just have to like really want it and go for it yeah and I, I appreciate you saying that because that was you know part of my thing too is like oh there's already so many books about you know through hiking especially even the John Muir Trail and like ugh, why is my story any different and then I just felt like well everybody has a different story everybody has a different experience a different perspective you know it's just like anything in life that you can do something identical as somebody else, but you can perceive it differently and you meet different people and you have different experiences. And, and so that's what, for me, I felt like, I don't know, it just kind of felt like a, a need of, I feel like I need to share the story. And it feels like this isn't just a kind of turning point and um, within my life and kind of this reflection that it felt like something that I could share for other people who might be also thinking, you know, they want adventure or they want to try something new or just kind of this reflection of saying, you know, because it was the starting, you know, as you, you mentioned earlier, it was kind of the, the starting point of, you know, a lot of things changed in my life <laughs> after the JMT. And um, yeah, I just wanted people to know, like, it's just, it's not too late to change course and, and do something else, even if it's just a complete shift within your whole life. Right. Well, and yours is, was like such like a, it was a self-discovery book, I felt like, in a way, but also, like, you did a really good job of just being very, like, you just kind of talked about, like, the basics of planning for a hike. This is the basics of the trail. Like, you were just very, like, matter-of-fact in it, too, and I didn't think, like, it was, like, so caught up in necessarily the emotions that can come with it. Like, I felt like you wrote about the emotions, but it wasn't, like, some other through-hike books that I've read that are, like, all about someone's emotions and in their head and processing all of that. And I don't, I don't know if that was your intent in writing the book, but that's kind of how I felt. It was just like a very like easy read matter of fact book. This is like a perfect like entrance for someone to get to know the JMT, especially as a first timer. Yeah. And I, I think, you know, part of it is, um, I, when I kind of thought about like my audience, I thought about the people who came to the presentation at my work, who some people were hikers who did some small day hikes. Um, some were totally inexperienced and most were inexperienced, to be honest. They were just, you know, really interested in this. Whoa, what is a JMT? And what did you, you were out there for three weeks? What it, you know, in the mountains and um, you know, I came back, I was 14 pounds lighter and, <laughs> you know, they were, they were very curious. So I think when I was writing the book, I was thinking about, you know, I want it to be somewhat useful for people who are thinking of hiking the JMT. So that's why there's some of the, the prep in there and stuff, but I did think about it as people who haven't necessarily backpacked or maybe never even will, but they want to know what would it be like, or what's the experience. And so I tried to kind of give those, I, I just remember thinking for myself that, gosh, when I first started hiking, I really didn't know anything. I didn't even know through hiking was a thing. And so I felt like, well, I've got to give some basic information <laughs> for, um, 
people who are just totally new to this world that, you know, don't know anything. And I've had a lot of readers of my book say that, that they, you know, didn't know anything about what it took to prepare for a through hike. And so they appreciated some of those details of these are the things you have to do to prepare. Um, and so I, yeah, I guess I thought about it as like, you know, I want people to hear about the story and if they're planning on hiking the JMT or doing a through hike, it can help inspire them. But also if they're a newbie and they don't know, or maybe just like reading about the stories and won't hike it, that they would also still enjoy the kind of self-discovery and the things that I learned and, and the things that I experienced. Yeah. And I think you did a really good job of like intertwining like enough information, but still sharing like the story and like the people. Cause like, if I was just reading a guidebook about the JMT, I'd be totally bored. Yeah. But like <laughs> yours was like very interesting. Like it still shared a story about you and about the people you met along the way. And it, it gave information too, like plenty of like locations and landmarks and all of that. So I think it was a very good job of intertwining both worlds. Oh, thank you. I, I really appreciate that. That was, that was my goal. So it's good to hear. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I am so bored reading guidebooks. So. <laughs> oh, and that, I, I totally feel your pain because that's even the, the blogs and the things that I would read. And I read one book that was more like very guide guide-ish. And, you know, I, I was like, okay, I could do the one because I actually need to know these logistics for the specific trail. Um, but I had also read um, almost somewhere uh, 28 days on the John Muir trail. And um, that, you know, was written in, you know, only like 12 years ago or something, or I can't remember, but they hiked it back in like the early nineties as 22 year old, um, three women, three girls, women. And I, I really enjoyed the book. Um, I liked their experience, but I also felt like my experience was going to be really different because I wasn't 22. I wasn't with other friends. I hadn't just graduated college. So the things that they experienced and they went through, and it was in the early nineties when it was really male, male dominated, <laughs> you know, the trails are still male dominated, but it really was back then. And so I really liked here. I really liked reading that story. Um, but I also, I guess, liked that I knew, okay, mine was going to be a little bit different. So I really enjoyed those stories, but I, I definitely read some guidebooks to prepare, but I'm with you on the, unless you're training for that specific trail, it could be a little bit dry. <laughs> right. Right. But yeah, they, they are necessary when you're, especially yeah. when you're going out alone. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So when you got back from the trail, you kind of like, that's when you decided I'm going to sell my house, and <laughs> just like go travel to Alaska. Right. Yeah, yeah. So I came back September 2016. Um, it still took me a few more months to really, you know, I think people tend to think, you know, you're out there for three weeks in the wilderness, you'll get all the answers. And I wish it worked like a light bulb and all the answers came to you. Um, not so much. It still took me a few months to really realize that I needed to file for divorce. So that was a whole process because it took me months and then it took six months before it was legal. And by the fall of 2017, um, I was kind of looking at where do I want to go on vacation? I can't, I don't want to do something quite like the JMT, but I'd really like to do some sort of, um, adventurous activity, but maybe abroad. So I saw a, a hiking and kayaking tour in Norway, and I spent nine days with a group of about nine people and two guides kayaking through the fjords, hiking, climbing glaciers. And then I, once that ended, I had another 10 days to be on my own. And so I went to Oslo, Denmark. And at this point, you still owned your house, right? 
this point I still in my house. I still had my job, but I was officially legally divorced. So it was kind of my first kind of stepping out of, I, I had traveled alone. Like when I was 20, I drove from Missouri to Colorado to see family and up to Nebraska. And um, so I had, you know, traveled some work trips by myself, but this was my first kind of, let me see how I can do abroad by myself. And I ended up once the tour ended and I was by myself, I just, I loved it. I love, I thought, you know, I'd be really intimidated and I just, I liked that I could choose where to go, when to go, um, when to eat. Um, I was meeting a lot of people actually. And I started to discover that when you're by yourself, people are much more inclined to talk to you. Um, and so I felt like I was having a lot richer experience actually being alone. So when I came back to LA, that was, I think, August or September, 2017, it was the first time I had lived there for almost 15 years at that point that I really felt like I didn't want to be there anymore. And, you know, I kind of had these rumblings and on the JMT, I really felt like my life was going to look different. I just really didn't know how. And so I, several things happened over the next few months that, you know, realtor knocked on my door asking if I wanted to sell my house and they really needed inventory and the house few doors down sold for, sold for way more money than I would have anticipated. So I finally just started doing the math and, you know, I've had a job and a paycheck since I was 16. So not having a job was, was pretty terrifying to me, but I just couldn't really help that. I felt like my life is supposed to be different. And when I did the math and said, well, if I sell this house and, um, you know, quit my job, I think I'll have enough money that I can travel for two to two and a half years. And so June, 2018, it was all official. The house was sold. I had quit my job, put some stuff in storage, sold other stuff. And um, all I knew is I wanted to go to Alaska. So <laughs> I just started driving north and went through Canada. And it was about four months of going through Oregon and Washington, which by the way, has incredible hiking there too. Um, it's just, it's so beautiful up there, but I loved British Columbia. Um, that was just the, the Canadian Rockies are indescribable. Um, it's so untouched up there and went all the way to Alaska and back to LA, then went back to Whistler, Canada, just north of Vancouver ski town for six weeks. And then 2019, I went to Thailand for a month, Vietnam for a month, and Australia for six months. Um, and it's just been now trying to... Wait, were you overseas when COVID hit? I was not. So I came back from Australia October 2019. And I moved my stuff from storage in LA to St. Louis, where my family's still located, because... Um, I didn't want to keep paying storage fees and the housing's a lot cheaper in St. Louis. So I got a house to put on Airbnb and was getting all that set up. Then I went back to Whistler for my birthday in February, 2020. And then the beginning of March, 2020, I went to Switzerland and I, I do some house and cat sitting as well. Um, so I can stay for free and watch, watch their house and pet. And I had a two week one set up in Geneva. And then I was going to go and explore Eastern Europe for six to eight months, kind of be over within Europe. Um, depending on visas and whatnot. So I was there for 10 days, um, but the homeowners had to cancel their trip because they were Italian. They had Italian passports at the time Italy was on lockdown. And so they had me stay with them for a week while we were trying to figure out what to do. And then all the travel bans were announced. So I was actually on one of the very first flights that landed in the US the first day of the Europe travel bans. So that was quite an experience. The CDC came on board, you know, fully suited up and masked at the time where you know, it was so new. We're just like, what yeah. is going on? We had to fill out a health questionnaire, had to go through a health check. And I, I really thought, yeah, this will, this will be over in three months. You know, I'll, I'll go back. 
And so I, I booked a round trip ticket to go back in June because it was a lot cheaper actually to book round trip. And I thought, well, they said 30 day ban. This'll, I'll give them three months. It'll be fine. And yeah, we all know what happened there. So I was able though to do road tripping in 2020 within the US, um, see Glacier National Park, Yellowstone. And then in 2021, I road tripped for a few months to see, went through Tennessee to the Carolinas and then all the way up the coast of Maine and back. So there's still a lot of good things to see in the US, but um, it definitely kind of um, put a wrench in my kind of long-term travel plans there for a while. Right, right, for sure. I think, yeah, I did that to so many people. And But yeah, like you said, there's still so many ways that you can do it just by, by road tripping in the US. And yeah, that's like, like, the way that you're doing it now by like renting out Airbnbs and like traveling and do like you're doing it at a very like cost effective way. Yeah, it's I'm, I've always been um, a pretty frugal person. So my goal was, you know, while I with COVID, um, I'd had the one house I got set up at the end of 2019, beginning of 2020. And because I was back in 2020, just kind of hanging out in St. Louis, I ended up um, getting another house. Um, I think I closed though in the spring 2021. And so I've been spending the last year kind of getting that one running. So that way, yeah, the goal would be that, you know, I can have these things to help fund my travels and, and, you know, probably go to some cheaper countries at this point. Um, the US, Canada, Australia are really expensive. Um, so I've spent a lot of time in those three countries. So probably more um, back to either Southeast Asia or South America. Um, there's just so many places to see, but yeah, places that might be a little bit more budget friendly. Cause now, so you don't have a full-time job obviously, but like, do you do any other side gigs? I mean, you wrote a book. Yeah. So in 2020, I finished uh, my book and then I had it um, released and published on the five-year anniversary of when I started hiking. So um, that, and then also I blog about my travels. And so it's a little behind right now. It's, I've kind of finished all the way for the first year and a half, all the way up through Australia. Um, but I'd like to kind of turn into a travel book and then, um, running both of the Airbnbs are pretty much been taking most of my time between the blogging, finishing the book and the Airbnbs. And then if I'm traveling, then that is also pretty time consuming, but yeah, hoping that, um, you know, I can find, some ways that can, you know, make it continue to be a, a long-term kind of travel thing. So I don't, I don't have any plans, I guess, let's say to go back to corporate America or to go back to LA. I actually next month will probably go visit LA and visit some friends, but um, yeah, I guess done with that kind of phase of my life and hoping to um, keep this to be a next phase. And I, I know people who that I've met uh, work remotely and they teach English online or they're software developers. Um, I don't have that skill, but um, so there's, there's different ways that it's like with house and pet sitting, um, you know, some are a weekend, some, you know, will be for four months. Um, and I did three in Australia, the one in Switzerland, I did one in Boston um, over Christmas last year. And it's just a great way to meet locals and then have a furry friend with you. And yeah, it's just, you know, saves a lot of money if you can stay there for free. It's kind of a win-win and the pet gets to stay in their own home. They're a lot more comfortable. Um, and so those things also really help to kind of extend travels with a budget-friendly way. <laughs> yeah, that's like a perfect way, especially for a solo traveler to travel on the cheap. Like that's the perfect way to travel and see things because people are always going to need pet sitters and house yep. sitters and yeah, I've had really, really fun experiences. And uh, most of the people that I've, I've house it with, you know, I'm friends with and still in touch with. And 
um, it's just, you know, kind of a like-minded community of yeah. um, home sharing and, and pet sharing. And um, yeah, I've had some, some really cute, lovable pets too. And in Australia, I ended up watching two goats as well. So <laughs> that was a, a pretty, pretty fun experience as well. But yeah, there's all sorts of different pets, different locations, different timelines on, I go through trusted house sitters and you just pay an annual fee and so does a homeowner. And then there's no exchange of money. And so, yeah, it's just, it's a pretty sweet, you know, the, there's some people who go on sabbatical for a couple of months. So they need somebody for a few months and other times it's a couple of weeks or a week or weekend, but yeah, it's, I've had a really good experience with it. Right. And I like that you pay for the service because like, there's other services out there that are free, but it's like, well, you don't know who's actually coming in your house and all this. Yep. And like, I remember when I did traveling, I tried couch surfing and sometimes that was even hard to like be accepted as a couch surfer. Like, especially cause we were like a group of like two or three people. And usually they just want to accept one person. Hmm. What was your experience with that? I've, I haven't tried that, but I've been really curious on what people's yeah. experience have been with that. I only successfully actually couch surf like twice, but what I did it, like they were like super kind people, like just like other travelers that wanted to like open up their home and meet like-minded people. So yeah. it was a good experience. And yeah, like I said, I did it with other people. Like, I don't know that I would have necessarily done it alone. I felt safe because I was like with a friend and doing it with a friend, but because it's not like you're not, it's not a paid service. Like you don't necessarily yep. know who you're going into. And well, and that's exactly, you have a good point too, because that's why the reason you pay the annual fee, it's like $120 a year to trusted house sitters is because it covers the background check and verifying who you are and being there as a resource. If you have to call the vet or, you know, anything like that, it, it helps to have kind of that review and, and background check done for people. But um, yeah, I definitely, I, I've heard a lot about couch surfing. And so it's, I feel like it was really good for a while, but it's kind of morphed into kind of some shadiness depending on the country. Like I've had, I've heard mixed reviews, I guess, of like people having really awesome experiences and other people having not so good. Yeah. And I remember like, I would like send so many messages and sometimes get like no responses. And oh, that's a bummer. Yeah. Because like, I'm sure so many people are trying to do it like in certain places. So it was, it was kind of hard to like be accepted. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's the same. That's it's kind of true with house sitting, to be honest. They're like, when you're new, you have to start in the more remote area. So my first one was like an hour and a half from Melbourne um, in Ballarat because places like Sydney or Melbourne or New York, um, you'll have 20 plus people apply for it. Um, and so when you're new and you're trying to build up your reviews. So my first one was in Ballarat for two weeks. And then I had one in Adelaide, which is a decent sized city, but you know, it's not Sydney or Melbourne. And then I did one like three hours south of Perth, which was in a small country town, had goats. And once I had three reviews, that was really helpful. And then I house sat for a friend also in LA and a different a former coworker. And so she wrote me a review and then my Switzerland one. So at this point now, and then I did Boston last year. And so it's helpful now that I have like five reviews and confirmed, but it is a challenge at first because, you, you know, it's like, you got to build up that trust and build up the reviews to show like, I'm a legit person and I'll take care of your, <laughs> but I understand that nervousness of letting a stranger in your home and um, having them take care of everything. And, but yeah, there's some house that's honestly, there's, you know, two or three people apply. And I've actually had a few people find my profile on there and ask me, are you interested in house sitting? And it just, the dates or the location haven't worked out, but they had to reach out to people because they weren't getting 
people to apply. And then other ones you'll see, oh gosh, there's 30 people who applied to this. <laughs> like, this is going to be pretty hard to get this one, but um, it's really kind of a mixed bag, but I've, I've had a really good experience with it. So it's something I'll, I'll definitely continue to do. Yeah. Well, and it's like running an Airbnb too. Cause so like we Airbnb at our house for a while as well. And like, even like starting that out, like you just have to like work up your profile and like work up the reviews, like anything like yeah. you just need to become legit. And then it's like, okay, yeah. This yeah. That's exactly it. And I know people who say, oh, I won't book an Airbnb unless there's at least 50 reviews. And I'm like 50, do you know how 50, long it takes? A lot. Get, it takes a lot to get 50 reviews. And you can't please everyone. You can please most, but yeah. And there's always going to be someone who's just not satisfied. Always. <laughs> always. <laughs> yes. So yeah, it's very similar though to that. Like you got to earn that trust and you got to have, you know, but I also have to take a lot of, I, I end up hosting a lot of people, my Airbnbs who are brand new. Um, and so it's, you know, 90% of the time it goes well and 10% is like, Ugh. but I understand that. Well, yeah they're new. They have to build up their reviews on the guest end as well. And so, uh, you know, it's similar with trusted house sitters that when you're new, you got to be willing to maybe take the more remote locations that don't have a ton of applications um, in order to build up that trust first. Right. Right. This has been super, super fun to talk to you. So where, if people wanted to like find your blog, read about your travels, get in touch with you, where's the best place they should go? Um, probably my website, Teglogos, um, T-E-G-L-O-G-O-E-S. Um, that's where I have, um, you can contact me through there. I have my blog. Um, my book is listed there. You can find my book on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, or a lot of the um, independent bookstores will have it mostly online. Um, you can order through their website and, um, also Instagram, Instagram and my website are both Teglogos and those are probably the things I use most often. Um, and I'm the most active on. So awesome. Perfect. Any, did we miss anything else? We've talked about a lot. I don't know. Is there anything else you wanted to add? <laughs> no, no. I think this has been great. I really appreciate you taking the time to read my book and um, have me on to discuss it. I really enjoyed talking with you. Yeah. Yeah. I loved reading your book. You've been listening to the Hiking Through Life podcast. Peace, love, and hike through life.